Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we're discussing the biggest thing you can do to increase cash flow. We're discussing the number one secret to plug the money leaks so that you can increase your cash flow and take control of your financial destiny without cutting back, working harder, or taking on more risk. I'm Rachel Marshall. I'm one of your hosts, and along with me is my co-host, Bruce Weiner. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. I'm I'm really happy that we're going to talk about this because I talk about this with clients all the time and just my friends in general or acquaintances, and they don't really get what I'm saying. And I'm hope, hopefully that uh, as we continue to hone our message, we will have a better idea of how we can get this um, message across the difference between cash flow and just accumulating a pile of, of cash. Excellent. Well, I'm also really excited to jump in today. So let's set the stage for this discussion. So the truly successful are not worrying about money and they are thinking differently than the rest. So if you follow the path of where money goes, you find out who's in control and that gives you the tools then to be able to model what the successful are doing. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. So since you are wanting to take control of your life and your destiny as a listener, as somebody who's joined in with the Money Advantage community, we want to help you build that financial freedom and give you the roadmap to do exactly that. So let's zoom out for a second. We want to go ahead and see where does this fit in the survival to significance cash flow system. So the foundation in stage one is to keep more of the money you make. Next, stage two is protect your money. Stage three is finally to increase and make more. Now, increasing cash flow is very interesting because it actually fits in all three stages. First, you're keeping more of your current paycheck by reducing your money leaks. That's one place we're increasing cash flow. Next, it fits in the protection phase because you're protecting your money through effective savings to earn compound interest. And thirdly, it fits into the making more money section because you're utilizing cash flowing assets in your investing to build financial freedom. So we're building this bridge to help you see how you can increase your cash flow. And it all starts with your perspective, your goals, your mindset. And that really comes down to how you think. So today we're answering why focus on cash flow to begin with. What is cash flow? And how do I increase my cash flow? We're going to be specifically focusing on how do you stop having so many dollars flow out of your hands and start keeping and controlling more of your money? How do I leverage the magic of compound interest so I earn it instead of paying it? How do I stop making costly mistakes by following typical advice and instead think for myself and take control? And how do I go from building the empires of Wall Street and banks and financial institutions and the government to building my own financial destiny? So let's go ahead and dive in. So first, let's talk about why cash flow. And Bruce, this is kind of what you brought up at the very beginning, the difference between cash flow and accumulation. So we want to talk with you about the three different mindset shifts that really need to be a part of your paradigm as you are building financial freedom. 
And this is different from the status quo, which is why I think it's challenging sometimes to break out of what the norm is. So the first is moving from an accumulation mindset to a cash flow mindset. So Bruce, would you share kind of what is the typical accumulation mindset? Well, you know, we have been the society that has been influenced, I believe, by the financial services industry to say, hey, you have to put away money, put away money, put away money and build this mound of cash. And we have to we have to say to ourselves, yes, it benefits us, but who else does it benefit when you're looking at this mound of cash? And not that it's not that there's anything wrong with everybody having a symbiotic relationship so that both people benefit, but I think it's important that you understand that what, what most financial institutions are trying to do is they're trying to get a systematic way to have you send them money. They want to hold it for as long as possible, and then they want to trickle it back to you in as little as possible. And mm-hmm. that accumulation um, mound is oftentimes also at risk. And this is the angst that people have when they go to use this money. And it's hard to kind of go over this in a podcast, but there's something called sequence of returns. And so what you'll see if you're in a a typical uh, stock market type portfolio of of a 60, uh, 30, 10 split of 60% stocks, 30% um, bonds and 10% cash, is that when one of the equities actually don't they don't perform then all of a sudden you have you have a choice to make you you can continue to take the same amount of money off of your equities and thus erode the equity even uh, further but now the 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 mound of cash even if it does the stock market or the bond market goes up in the future it it actually goes up on a smaller a mound, so it's harder to build the mound higher. And mm-hmm. uh, I, actually, I actually experienced this with my parents after the 2008 um, 9 financial crisis, where uh, yeah. they lost some money and finally uh, turned to me and asked what they could do. And so then we, we start looking at it and say, what's the most important thing? Is it this mound of cash or is it the consistent? cash flow that you come in every month. A great right. a great example of consistent cash flow that comes in every month for a, a lot or majority of people is Social Security. Mm-hmm. And people don't even think about Social Security. It just comes in every month. So if you can have cash flow that just comes in every month, um, but you but you have this mentality that I'm going to try to establish cash flow with more cash flow that you're controlling today so that you can decide whether you want to spend it, save it, invest it, or give it away. Then you have this breathing room, you have this confidence, you have this relaxed peace of mind when you're in a position, then you'll you'll make even more money uh, if you see an opportunity. So, Oh, absolutely. I think this is what we're really talking about, the difference between accumulation and cash flow. Yeah, I kind of see it like this. So I see... An accumulation is this mountain. You're building up this mountain. You want to get to the peak. And then the goal of that accumulation, whether you accumulated a million dollars, two million, five million, 25 million, is to find out a way to divest it, or as you were talking about, sequence, 
of returns of finding a way to distribute it to yourself in the form of cash flow so that you can live out the rest of your life. But the focus is on how much, how high to build the mountain in the accumulation model. Whereas with cash flow, you're looking at how do I increase streams of income to me? So in a moment, we're going to define cash flow and kind of take that a little further into how to increase it. But right now we want to look at cash flow really is this surplus that you control. It's a stream of incoming money. It's not so much focused on how high the mountain is, but how broad the stream of money coming to you is. And so as Bruce, you're saying, if we're ultimately our ultimate goal of our financial life is to make sure that we have enough income in the future. Why not go ahead and bring that goal forward to today and start increasing the income that we're making instead of focusing just on building the mountain? Yeah, and you can do this in a variety of ways. Um, you can do it with cash flowing products such as annuities or alternative investments. You could do it with businesses or you can do it with a combination of, of different things. Um, what, what's interesting is a lot of people uh, really look at what I would say is a scarcity mindset when they say, well, I don't want to hand, and we talk about control all the time, and I want to make this very clear to people. So if you do put your money in an alternative investment, which when we, when we classify alternative investments, we're talking about something that's not a stock bond or mutual fund. It's alternative mm-hmm. to the stock market. Uh, there is some lack of liquidity there. However, you do control the rate of the cash flow that comes off of that. So it might seem like uh, we're contradicting ourselves, and maybe some people could argue that, but I would argue that the most control that you have is how much cash flow do you have. Uh, Oh, absolutely. And annuities would work the same way. Some people really don't like annuities because they say, well, I'm giving up control to an insurance company. However, uh, I just attended a seminar with Lincoln Financial, and they had, an in, they had an independent survey done where people that had purchased annuities in the United States were 7% happier with their lifestyle and, and 10% happier with their uh, financial advisor for presenting it to them. Oh, interesting. Yeah, was, I, thought, I thought, and it was, because it it was independent. Because it creates cash flow. Because it creates cash flow. And I, right. I find that to be something that um, people don't understand how the difference between just accumulating a bunch of money and then taking the, taking the cash flow off of it, because they inherently know that if something happens to that mound of cash, they're either going to run out of money or they got to take less money off and they're not happy with that. And they're, Right, which that's the shrinking of the cash flow and that's why it causes that frustration and, and pain. That's right. And we and we just came off of a series of transferring risk uh, in mm-hmm. insurances. And that's all an annuity does. It transfers what we call in the business longevity risk from you to people who specialize in it and that are insurance companies. And then the mm-hmm. final one, which not everybody's cut out for, uh, the final category, and there's a bunch of categories, but alternative investments, annuities, and the final one is a business. And it's interesting if you look at the, the Forbes list of richest people in the world, uh, a vast majority of those people are business owners. Mm-hmm. And so if you can control a business interest, either one that you build up and then you take something that's called an earnout or a dividend 
from from uh, selling the business or transferring the business to the second generation. Um, this will also provide you cash flow off the business, whether you own it or not. And there's some tax benefits to that. And but it's also a peace of mind that my my cash flow is not determined on a mound of cash or a mountain of cash, as you say. Mm-hmm. It's determined by a cash flowing entity. That's awesome. And I would put real estate in there too. And oh, yes. maybe you are mentally putting that right under a business. That's exactly or in right. a business. Yeah. Mentally, I'm saying it's like a business. Yes. It is. And and ultimately, if you have a real estate empire, you are running that as a business and it is your business. But um, that's a category of assets that typically can be used in that cash flow way as well. So that idea of having cash flow or streams of income, this gives you control because now you have choices and you can decide what you want to do with that. It also gives you this breathing room in your financial life. I mean, the last time you had only a dollar left over at the end of the month, that's a tight and stressful position. But if you had a thousand or five thousand or twenty thousand dollars left at the end of the month, that is this stream of income or this cash flow that gives you that relaxed confidence and peace of mind, which then actually allows you to create more money because you're in a different mindset and you're able to be relaxed and confident and produce the best. Yeah. I I actually say to my clients, what we're going to attempt to do is have more money than month rather than have more month than money. Uh, Because that's, that's a feeling that a lot of people go through is they, they check the bank account towards the end of the month and, and decide how they're going to live their life for the next week, five, six, Mm -hmm. you know, how many days in some cases, hopefully it's not, you know, two weeks trying to live their life until the end of the month. Um, oh, absolutely. That, that gets that scarcity mindset about we're going to focus on, you know, this um, mound of money that I have to, I can't, I can't actually, um, you know, whittle down because if I do, then I'm going to continue to um, make this mound smaller and smaller and affect my overall cash flow for the rest of my life. Oh, absolutely. So let's cover the other two mindset shifts. And then I want to jump back into what is cash flow. So we're going to depart from the cash flow conversation just for a moment to get these other two mindsets in. And then we were going to come right back full circle to cash flow and how to increase it. So the next mindset is we want to switch from retirement to financial freedom. And now most people are in this, I'm planning for retirement mindset, which means I'm going to put away money until I get to the top of the mountain, then I'm going to stop the income because I quit my job and I stop working. And then my money has to pay for my future lifestyle. So retire literally means to put out of use. Mm-hmm. And that's not a position that we want to be in. I, I don't think it's physically or emotionally or um, mentally healthy for any person to think of themselves as getting to a some point date where they will be put out of use and no longer useful to the economy at large and society at large and to their personal economy. And so really, we want to get to a position where we're working in this productive capacity, and we have greater ability to provide value to others. And that is looking towards building financial freedom, where now it's not just, I'm not living with my income just from my job, I have my assets producing income. And when my assets, maybe that's the businesses, annuities, alternative investments, real estate, those things are producing enough income that pay for my expenses and then some, now I'm financially free. I have a 
choice whether I want to continue working and in what type of capacity I want to work, but I don't have to continue working in order to provide for my lifestyle. But I also am not thinking I'm going to retire and just step back from this whole idea of making money at all. And so that's the mind sh- mindset shift from retirement to thinking, how do I get my money working for me in cash flowing assets? Yeah. And this is something that's very passionate to me. I don't understand how we take the most productive, most experienced people in our society and then say to them, okay, we're going to work. And and they're inundated with this retirement kind of attitude. We're we're going to get you to a certain level. We're going to build up this pile of cash or heck, we are going to build up these, these cash flowing assets uh, even sometimes. And then people say, I'm going to walk away. I would, Mm -hmm. I would rather we help people get into the position that they feel that they're constantly contributing to society. We'll have a better society that way. And, And then get them in either to continue to work at the job they like under their terms which will which mm-hmm. will benefit they'll be a happier employee which will benefit the business or we get them we do get them cash flowing assets they can then move into something that they're very passionate about that will continue mm-hmm. continue to contribute to society so that's a mindset that i think people need to really step back and say to themselves do i really want to retire and you're right retire means put out of put out of uh, uh, control because or put out a use use or put out a commission yeah. or something Business yes owners talk about this all the time when they do depreciation of capital assets they talk about they mm-hmm. talk about um a particular um piece of equipment it has to be retired after seven years and right. yeah, and so what they're really doing is we're taking an a, a business is taking an asset or society's taking an asset and retiring it on a, on a certain schedule and um, I just believe that this all, you know, this all is attributed to our 1935 decision during the Great Depression to start Social Security. And at that time, it was it was set up so that we could get kind of the older workers out of the workforce because we had well over 25 percent unemployment. And that started the scarcity mindset, because before that, you know, our society was built on uh, small businesses and people. Mm-hmm. People just working and being being productive citizens in our society. And I mean, we look at it now and most of our audience is business owners. And we're in this position of not just having a job where we go as an employee and we're collecting a paycheck, but instead we're creating this business that gives value and provides something of value to other people, whether it makes their lives happier or more easy in some capacity. Maybe it's a new invention or maybe it's a a service-based business. But as you're providing that service, then the goal isn't just to get out of the business and say, well, that was just my work years and now I'm going to get out of the business. Maybe that is the right way for you, but maybe you have built up these new skills and abilities and you're able to provide even better value. Or maybe you step into a consulting role instead of the being the primary business um, producer. Mm -hmm. But the goal is to be a producer in every capacity of your life and to make sure that you're giving back. And that gives you more energy, more confidence, more um, satisfaction, even that you're contributing and giving the most of yourself. So then let's look at this, this third mindset shift. This is from scarcity to abundance. And Bruce, I think you have alluded to this and mentioned it even several times, even in our discussion up to this point already, but most people focus on scarcity. And when it comes to money, most people think of money 
as being finite, this limited concrete amount of resource that there isn't always enough to go around. And if you spread it to one person, then it shrinks the ability to help somebody else. Or if you, if one person is successful, another person has to lose out Mm -hmm. and it creates this worry and fear and doubt. There's not enough money today. There's not enough time to enjoy life. And this limitation then puts us in a fear position and we're either being a spender or being a saver in that capacity. But either way, we're just operating out of pure fear instead of operating out of this abundance perspective. So abundance is really recognizing that with money, there's more than enough to go around because money is a product of creating value. Every person has an infinite ability to create value. And as you create more value, you create more income that increases what you have in financial resources, but it improves the value that you give to others. And it expands and increases the pie, if you will, for everyone. And so as we embrace life through a perspective of abundance, we have the ability then to find more creative ways to create cash flow and find more creative ways to build a self-sustaining business and find more creative ways to build financial freedom with streams of income. So those are all related. And I wanted you to see how those all play into this idea of increasing cash flow. Yeah, yeah, the scarcity mindset, um, it, it is permeated in our society. Uh, I just had a, a very uh, spirited discussion yesterday with w- like my co-working group where um, somebody made the comment that Jeff Bezos is the next coming of Lex Luthor. And um, hmm. I said, oh, you know, tell me more about that. He said, well, you know, he has a, he has a terrible – uh, Amazon has a terrible culture within their organization. And I said, well, you know, first of all, let's make sure we understand where we get this information uh, because disgruntled people talk a lot more. Mm-hmm. You know, they always, you know, the, the old thing in uh, marketing is, you know, if you're, if you're dissatisfied, you tell, you know, 20 people. And if you're satisfied, you tell two people. So, uh, mm-hmm. I said, so let's let's worry about that. Secondly, there's a personal responsibility. If people are dissatisfied, why do they continue to work for Amazon? And so they have a personal responsibility to change the culture by saying, I'm not taking I'm not I'm not taking this anymore. And if enough people would do that, then the culture would have to change. The final thing is what people don't realize is that um, Jeff Bezos has provided a lot of people through his systems uh, employment. And I don't, I could not mm-hmm. find the employment numbers when I researched this to, for today, but it's, it's gotta be in the tens of thousands of people across the United States. And it's gotta be in the hundreds of thousands when you consider the support, when you're talking about people that produce the cardboard boxes for the shipments, the mm-hmm. shippers and so on and so forth. And so to have this, um, and this particular person had this idea that Jeff Bezos was making all this money on the backs of all these poor workers, but well, uh, we forget yeah. that these poor workers are now working. These, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm saying poor workers as facetiously, and then, oh, sure. then we also have to understand that Jeff Bezos is providing a service to society that has greatly improve productivity uh, for society. Oh, yes. So, you know, though there will be several Amazon boxes a week at our house that allows me not to go to the store 
and allows me to service my clients much better because I don't mm-hmm. have to take the time to go to a store. And so, oh, and absolutely. so I, I prefer to look at it from an abundance mindset and see is, is see that how, what, it, what is he contributing overall to society? And yes, yeah, so there's some things that, you know, they can definitely work on. Um, yes. But if they don't continue to work on those things, I believe in disruption and somebody else will come about and disrupt it much like Southwest airlines did to the airline industry. Oh, it's true. And if you look at any innovation, I mean, the healthy perspective is with innovation, yes, there's going to be disruption. There's going to be changes in the status quo. Will some people's particular jobs go away? Yes. But at the same time, it creates an expanded world for everyone. I mean, you think about any disruption or innovation that's ever happened. I mean, with the internet, with technology, with Apple, um, you know, Steve Jobs and the innovation that happened there, there's just so much that you can look at and say, well, it caused challenges or problems if you look at it from a scarcity, finite way of thinking. But if you look at the bigger picture and realize how much we've expanded the capability for everyone, it's amazing what that innovation can do. I really like how you yeah, got so that. So this in. is the, that's just a little bit about scarcity and abundance. So I guess we need to get into cash flow now. And yeah, so and this go is ahead. great because um, I'm so glad we're going to talk about this because everybody focuses on making the pie bigger, but I think you ought to you ought to focus first on how to make the pie more efficient. And that I love how you said that. That's awesome. And that's uh and, and that's income minus expenses. It's a simple, efficient calculator that says that equals cash flow. Well, a lot of times it's mm-hmm. a lot easier to uh, look at your expenses than it is to increase your cash flow. Uh, but mm-hmm. I see this every day with my clients when they say, oh, well, yeah, I could I could shop my cable bill, but you know, it's probably only going to s- save me $40 a month. Or I can shop my property and casualty uh, insurance, but it's probably only going to save me $80 a month. Oh, I can, I can shop my car, um, my, my car payment and see if I could get mm-hmm. into a, a different car and not pay as much, but it's only going to save me $50. And they keep going and going. And all of a sudden, you know, if you add up everything, to- there's five thousand dollars. Yeah, right. There's five thousand dollars a year, and it's not just it's not just five thousand dollars for one year. If you continue to do that, it's five thousand for the next year, the next year, and the next year. A great example is property tax remediation. Uh, property tax remediation is something that everybody I think has a patriotic duty to do. And if people don't know what I'm talking about, you have the ability to appeal your property taxes every year. And you simply, you can either do it yourself, which I've done it myself, and I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, tell, tell you to spend your time with it. But the great thing is there's, serv- there's services out there, businesses that will do it for you. And so they will go argue your assessed value based on comps around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I saved about $1,400 one year um, on this particular uh, remediation. And the, um, then this year, well, I, actually that was uh, two years ago. Um, last year, I didn't think it was worth it. This year, I think it's worth it again. So I'm going to hire a company to do it. And they take they take 50% of the savings for the first year. 
And so, which is still great if they're giving you the value of the savings right. and you're still saving and it's, money. And, it's mm-hmm. and you have the save the ongoing savings going forward. So when you look at the expenses, then that's a quick way to increase cash flow. Just had a, mm-hmm. I just had a client the other day that we we took I took her to my broker that we have in our integrated resource network and they had a rental house and a regular house and uh, cars and we saved fifteen hundred dollars a year uh, on their on their pro- uh, property uh, and casualty and car insurance and it just awesome. increased it and they said well I just never think about I never think about shopping my car insurance. Uh, well, and you know, Bruce, another idea with that is making sure you're not spending any more than you need to in taxes. Most of us do spend more than we need to just because we don't have the lens of the right tax strategy that really maximizes and makes more efficient our taxes. And so we're going to be digging into some of these individual concepts and arenas for maximizing your tax or ma- maximizing your cash flow as we continue on in this upcoming series. But we're talking about doing things that don't cut into your lifestyle, but make it more efficient. So I really want to point that out. It's not about scrimping and cutting back and saying, well, let me just live on ramen noodles and tuna and rice and beans. But really, how do I live what I'm living in my current lifestyle and pay as efficiently as possible for that? And if I could, if I could, we're going to talk about this in a future podcast, but this is becoming, I want to just tease this a little bit. In 2013, the Medicare Trust um, actually put out what are called IRMA brackets. And IRMA brackets basically are the more that you make your adjusted gross income, the more you actually have to pay Medicare Part B and Part D. We'll talk about this more in depth, but just positioning your assets so that they are more tax efficient uh, can actually save you upwards of $3,600 a year from what you're paying on Medicare. It's not illegal. It's not even. It's not even hard if you just know how to do it. And so we'll mm-hmm. talk about the, uh, more tax efficiencies. But that's one that a lot of people, a lot of advisors, don't even know about right now. Because if they don't focus on Medicare, then they're not going to even know about the Irma brackets. So now that we've talked about why we want to have cash flow and what cash flow is. We've given you a lot of ideas on maybe individual ways you can improve your efficiency to reduce your expenses. I want to bring you a new idea that will be the number one way to increase your cash flow. And we're going to talk about this in terms of how you increase your cash flow and your control. And it's this, it's to understand the rules of the bank and model them not just being a customer of the bank, but being like a bank in your own financial life. And this is going to come with some explanation. And we're going to talk through then the seven rules and the principles that the bank uses. But when we say bank, first of all, I want to say this is banks, financial institutions, the government, this is Wall Street. When you think about the flow of money, most of the time we have money going to these entities. We have money going out of our pocket into banks, Wall Street, financial institutions, and the government building their empires. And when they have money in their control, they can do more with it. They can use it to create cash flow. And they're proper stewards of that money. I mean, you could argue that maybe the government's not entirely because of the national deficit right. and the and the debt, but they, for the most part, 
if we say the word bank, we mean we mean those type of entities that are using money in their control and creating cash flow and streams of income from that. And so, Bruce, do you want to share anything more about that before we kind of jump into what the the two different sides are looking for and how we often get diluted to play into their hands instead of building our own well, house? Um, I was really awakened by this, and I believe I probably have said it on another podcast. When I went to a seminar probably close to nine years ago, where a person was talking about mortgage interest rates. And they, they said, did you ever wonder why a bank lowers the interest rate on a 15-year mortgage? Mm-hmm. When, that's yep. how they make their money. So why are they incenting us to take a 15-year loan out by lowering the interest rate when that we, you know, you could take a 30-year loan out and have a, higher interest rates. So they're saying, oh, look, we're going to entice you to take a lower interest rate by shorting the terms and you're going to save all this interest. Well, well, they mm-hmm. don't do it out of the kindness of their hearts. They they know something about the velocity of money. Two things they know is a, is a dollar today is worth more than it's going to be worth in 30 years. And at, and at historical inflation rates, that means a thousand dollar mortgage payment is going to only be worth $412 of actual buying power in 30 years. So, so mm-hmm. my, my eyes were really awakened at that time because I said, well, why do I want to give them more than $1,000, which would be a 30-year loan? Because uh, at a 15-year loan, you have to give them about 33 34% more. So I'd have to give them $1,330 a month. When I can give them $1,000 a month and then – that will only feel like $412 in the future. The other thing it it does is it lowers their risk because now that you have more money uh, in equity in your home, if something were to happen to you and you couldn't pay the loan back, um, then they have an asset that has a lot of equity in it. And and the Mm -hmm. last thing, uh, a real life example, I wrote this down for today. And I don't, I don't behoove or not behoove, begrudge um, Mm -hmm. banks from making money. But I think what we're saying, Rachel, is if they're making money this way, why don't we try to emulate them so that we can make money this way? And I get. Exactly. And it matters how they're doing it so that we can understand the principles. Otherwise, we'll be on the list. I tell people about the mortgage. I said, if you want to pay, if you want to go ahead and pay your house off sooner, Go ahead and do it. I just want I just want you to know what the education is on this. And here's another great example. When um, and and from previous podcasts, we know you know that in 2014 my house burned down, and so we went when we went to rebuild. We asked the bank the uh, if it it was a little it was a local bank. We had our land appraised at two hundred thousand dollars, and I said to them, I said could we use the land as collateral so we don't have to bring any money to the table and we can just not have a down payment? And they said, sure. That's what the the bank official did. And then the day that we were, the day before we were supposed to close, I get a call and they said, we have your papers and your down payment is $125,000. And I said, well, wait a minute. You said you're going to take my land. Oh, well, yeah, but the the board didn't approve that. And I said, well, what do you mean the board didn't approve it? Why didn't you tell me sooner? Well, I don't know. We just had a meeting and 
so on and so forth. Well, then my wife and I have been living in an apartment for about seven months now, going through this traumatic experience. So I could have went to another lender, but then that process would have taken. So I just said, fine. And I, and I paid the down payment with the insurance money. So that meant they had $200,000 worth of land value plus another $125,000. So they had $325,000 of collateral and we were asking for $370,000 for a construction loan. So they all, okay. <laughs> when, you, when you look at that, they almost had the exact amount of collateral as the construction loan. Once again, it's smart by, mm-hmm. by them to do that. But we, we have to ask ourselves, can we do similar things so that we can increase our cash flow? Oh, absolutely. So let's look here then. So again, we're saying bank, we mean any institution, specifically financial institutions that are that we're paying payments to. And I would encourage you to do this in your own financial life. If you totaled up all of the payments that you've made to a bank for a loan, any payments you've made to uh, investments in qualified plans or stocks, and any payments you've made to the IRS for taxes over the course of your life, and if you set that in one bucket, and then on another side of the paper, you total up all the payments you've made to yourself, your own savings on the other side, which one would be larger? And the payments then, whoever has the receipt of the payments has the cash, then can turn that into creating cash flow. And so usually there's going to be a large discrepancy. We've had most of our cash going to banks and financial institutions, as opposed to going to ourselves. And so what we want to do is bring awareness to this idea that when you receive that cash and those payments, this then puts you in a position of control that you can create cash flow. So what is the bank doing? They are getting money as often as possible through loan payments or through investments or through um, you're investing in a retirement plan. They're keeping as much of it as possible. They're keeping it as long as possible. They're giving you back as little as possible and they're taking as little risk as possible. And so what's happening is they have control of that cash. So what are we told then as consumers, as people living our life, business owners and just regular people in the world, we're told to put away money as often as possible, make payments to loans or put away money for our future as often as possible, as much as possible, leave it there as long as possible, don't touch the money, take out as little as possible. And we're told that we should take higher risk because that means higher returns. So take more risk. It's exactly the opposite. There's two different playbooks. And if you look at the empires of the bank and the financial institutions, they're winning and we're on the losing end of the proposition. And so what we want to do is we want to say, how can we play according to the rules of the bank and get more money coming into our control as often as possible and using that to create more money. So here are the seven rules of the bank. The banks want cash flow. Now, Bruce, you just talked about this as you were talking about how quickly they want you to pay Mm -hmm. off a loan. So they're not just accumulating money though, they're accelerating it. They're getting loans paid back more quickly. And anytime you make additional payments or you make biweekly payments on a loan, or you have a shorter length of a payment, they're getting more cash flow quicker into their pockets that they're able to then steward and use it to increase and create more money. 
So it's an inflow and an increase to the bank's cash and a decrease to yours. Also, when you think about that, if you're paying off a loan more quickly, that can result in a liquidity crunch where you might need the cash for something. And, and you say, well, I had the cash, but I paid it to pay off the credit card loan, or I paid off the house and I put $5,000 extra to the house last month, and now I need $5,000. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean you have access to that capital. So we want to make sure that building the house of the bank is not putting us in a position where we lack liquidity. So the second rule of the bank is that the bank wants to earn interest. And they do this through something called arbitrage. Now, Bruce, I'm sure you're familiar with the term arbitrage. What would you say that that means? Well, it, it simply means that the difference between paying somebody for something, or in this case, paying somebody to place money into the bank, and then what you're loaning the money that money to somebody else. So it's the difference between those two payments. So, you know, yeah. So basically, the difference between what you pay and what you earn on the same money. Correct. Correct. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of people say, well, um, and I'm only using, I'm using ridiculous numbers and I'm only using it because it's easy. But, you know, if the bank pays us 1% on our money to place it in the bank, what they are actually doing, and I don't think people understand this, that they are buying our money at 1%. Mm -hmm. And then that's their cost. That's their cost. That's is their the one. cost. Mm -hmm. And then they're loaning it out, say, for a 4% car loan. Um, that's the, that's what they're then getting in 4%. So they're buying it at one and selling it at 4%. And the, the arbitrage would be the 3%. But as Kim Butler and, uh, and Todd Langford have taught, have taught us that that's not a 3% for the banks, but that's 300% increase right. for the banks. Because if I could put a dollar, if I'm the bank now and I can put $1 in and get $4 out, I've tripled my money. Right. So when we look at that, so again, we're looking at all of these rules with the lens of how is the bank operating to be in this position of financial stewardship where they're using their cash to create cash flow. And here's how they're doing it. So they want to get cash flow coming in. They earn interest through arbitrage. Now they're using leverage as well. This is rule number three. They use leverage. So they take your money and they make more. Now debt is leverage. Having a loan is leverage. Now the bank, as we talked about, can take that dollar, pay 1% on it and go charge 4%. They also have something called fractional reserve, the fractional reserve system. And within the US, we have the ability or the bank has the ability to take in $1, use that as a 10% reserve and loan out 10 more dollars. So they then are able to charge on the 10 more dollars that they loan out. And because of that, they're increasing the spread tremendously even higher than that 300% that you just mentioned, Bruce. Yeah. And Rachel, it's even worse than that when you really think about it, because let's say I have that $10 and I can then lend it out even at 10 times of that. Then you go out and buy a car, and that car dealer then makes a profit, and they place that money into their bank, and then, mm -hmm. then that bank can do the same thing. They can multiply the money times 10 in the fractional reserve banking way of doing business. Um, for, our right. for our listeners, and this continues to go, if our listeners want to read a good book, uh, they could probably even find the PDF online because the uh, Dr. Robert Murphy, who we've had on the podcast, and his business par partner, Carlos Lara, 
they have written a book called How Privatized Banking Really Works. And it's all about this fractional reserve banking. And if they, if you go online, I'm sure you can find it. Or maybe, uh, Rachel, we can put it in the show notes. We absolutely will. Yes, so I can do that. I just took a note on that, so I can do that. So let's jump into then number four. So banks use OPM. This is a term called other people's money. And I'm sure maybe it's existed before this, but I first heard it from Robert Kiyosaki. So when you put your money into deposit at the bank, that is the bank now using your money to make money. They're utilizing other people's money. So if you put 100000 into a CD and you earn 3%, say that's $3,000, they can then loan out a million. And if they just did that at 3%, they're going to earn 30000 on it. And that is going to be a 900% rate of return. Mm-hmm. So when we look at the way the bank is bringing cash flow in, earning interest, using leverage, and using other people's money to do it, these are some of the things that are increasing their cash flow. Now, number five is the bank wants money back faster. So banks are going to pay for what's most valuable to them. They're going to determine, we can determine what they want by looking at interest rates, exactly like you just shared earlier, Bruce. Whereas we, as the consumer, can think, oh, lower interest rate, better for me. Higher interest rate, not so good for me if I'm getting a loan. Or if I'm putting my money in the bank, higher interest rate that I'm going to earn on my money is going to be better for me. But really, if you think about the interest rate being the incentive the bank is setting and they're using that along a sliding scale based on what is most valuable to them, we can then find out what they most want. And they're looking for having as much money come into their their pockets as possible. If it's a longer CD, say for instance, they're going to pay a higher interest rate. Why is that? Because they want to have control of money for as long as possible. If it's a loan they're extending and they offer a lower interest rate, why do they do that? Because it's more valuable for them because they're going to get the cash back sooner as in a 15-year loan over a 30. Mm -hmm. Now, some people might find this, Rachel, some people might find this counterintuitive because they're saying, now, wait a minute, Bruce, Rachel, banks aren't paying but maybe 0.15% in my savings account right now. So they're not incenting me to put money into my accounts. Well, there is something that I refer to as the new norm, normal. Mm-hmm. And so there's about $12 trillion that are being held in banks right now, even though they're not paying hardly anything on it. Why is that? Because we have a baby boomer generation that is adverse to risk. And so as the stock market uh, starts to um, be at a higher and higher level, they say, hey, I'm going to take my money out of the stock market and I'm just going to store it at, at a very low interest rate. The other reason the interest rate is depressed, in my opinion, is that the banks themselves could get money from the Federal Reserve or other banks at a very low interest rate. So it's so the interest rate is being artificially manipulated, not from the free market, but from the Federal Reserve Bank. Oh, right. So that just throws another um, another layer of complexity into this whole discussion. So we're going to look at number six is the bank takes the guarantees. Now, if you are putting money into a mutual fund, say, for instance, you have the potential to gain or lose money based on the stock market or based on the performance of those funds within that mutual fund. 
However, usually the bank or the financial institution is going to take the guaranteed management fees. And so they're getting a guaranteed rate of return on your money while you're taking the risk. Mm -hmm. Just something to think about. So again, if we want to think like the bank, we want to be the one getting the guarantees, not putting the money at the risk at risk. And then number seven is the banks want low risk and guaranteed rate of return. It really goes hand in hand with what we just talked about. So they're most likely to extend a loan to the least risky person. So if you are the one who absolutely has plenty of money and could easily pay them back, as in your situation you brought up earlier, right, Bruce, right. where you had full collateral, the same amount as the loan, well, they know that they can take the land and they could take um, that down payment that you have and they can be completely made whole and that's very low risk to them. But the person who has no income and no assets is very risky. And if they get a loan at all, they're going to pay very high interest rates yeah. as a result of getting that loan. And a type of a type of bank in that situation is is what have popped up over the nation the last 20 years is these payday loan situations where people, um, they need money and, and they don't have it. It's kind of like I said earlier, they have more month than money. So mm-hmm. they go to a payday loan situation where they might pay 25, 30, 35% um, in interest, and then they just roll it over the balance to the next, and it and the, it just spirals out of control. Oh, absolutely, and that's again a super high interest rate. The other part that I want to mention with this is that if you go to take a loan from a bank, whether it's for a house or a car, you are going to be evaluated on your debt to income ratio. And what I do want to really just point out here is debt to income is not a it's not a function of how much you have in loans; it's a function of how much cash you have coming in, that's your income, to how much of that income is set to have to go out in fixed loan payments. So if you had $100, I'm just going to use simple, super easy, low numbers, $100 of income, and $80 of that income is fixed for a car payment, a house payment, and a student loan already. And those are fixed loan payments. That's an 80% um, debt to income ratio, right, Bruce? Yeah, yes. And um, I don't know why this popped into my head, but um, it's important that people understand this, but it's also important that we tell people it's not just about the numbers. It's, mm-hmm. it's also about the emotional part that you feel about debt. Now, if you feel if you feel like that after the education that you're getting, then that's okay that you go ahead and and handle your money any way you want. A great example is Warren Buffett, one of the richest men in the world. He's he still lives in a very modest house and I would doubt if he has any kind of loan on it. Um, mm-hmm. But then you got Mark Zuckerberg, a Facebook founder who you could very easily Google and he has a multi-million dollar mansion that he actually has a mortgage on even though right. he's worth several tens of billions of dollars. So and could easily pay it off. could yeah. easily pay it off. So, you know, it, it is about a, a mindset and what is, you're comfortable with. And, uh, you know, um, Buffett's, you know, can afford a lot more, but he's comfortable living the lifestyle he wants to live. Zuckerberg could, um, he understands how money works. So he says, I'm going to, I'm still going to have a mortgage because I'm going to use my and, and by the way, he because he has a lot of money, he was able to negotiate a very low interest rate. Right. And so he said, I'm going to keep my money working for me in other places. So um, absolutely, those are just things that popped in my he- head as we start to conclude this, this seventh, um, the seventh point of the banks. 
Yes. And those are going to be excellent things that we're going to flesh out as well in the coming episodes. But today, I want to just help kind of bring this home that instead of paying so much to the financial institutions through investments and loans and taxes, what we want to do is think about how do we become more efficient to have more of our dollars flowing into our control so that we can act like a banker or like the banking system instead of just being a customer of the bank. And what that allows us to do then is to get as much money as possible, keep it as long as possible, give up as little as possible, and take as little risk as possible. So the hard way is to follow typical financial advice and focus on accumulation and give up money to banks and financial institutions and Wall Street. And you're, you're doing that on a regular basis, having money flow out of your control. The easy way to build financial freedom is through cash flow, paying yourself first, get your money working for you and using that money as a steward to create cash flow. So thinking like a bank is the number one way to stop having so many dollars flow out of your hands and start keeping and controlling more of your money. It's the number one way to leverage the magic of compound interest because you're earning it, not just paying it. And it's the number one way to stop making costly mistakes by following typical advice and instead think for yourself and take control. It's also the number one way to go from building the empires of banks, Wall Street, and financial institutions to building your own financial destiny. So this, if this is something you want to implement in your own life and you want to find out how to think like a bank in your own financial life, you can talk to us for your free financial picture conversation and we'll help you discover dollars that are flowing out of your control, strategize ways to get more flowing back into your control so you can have more to retain and utilize during your lifetime, more to create cash flow with and more to pass on to future generations. Email us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com to request your financial picture conversation or to share your comments, questions, and feedback with us personally. You can also get the show notes and videos for this episode at themoneyadvantage.com. Thank you to you, our listeners. And up next, we're going to be talking about debt and how to pay it off without losing money. In the meantime, remember, success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. To learn how high-performing entrepreneurs 10x or more returns on liquid capital without giving up quick access to cash, go to themoneyadvantage.com forward slash liquid capital to get The Unfair Advantage, your 20-minute easy-to-read guide on maximizing your savings. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor 
both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.